Well, Dad, I noticed some interesting news kicking around that came out of the Mining Pool Observer Project. They noticed something kind of unsettling, but I thought maybe I'd start with, could you kind of explain what the Mining Pool Observer Project is and what they're doing? Yeah, this is a really interesting project. It's produced by Bitcoin developer OXB10C, obviously a pseudonym. And if you will recall, I think last year, there was a U.S. mining pool, I want to say Marathon, that added a op return message to the blocks they mined that said something to the effect of, this is an OFAC compliant block. And it wasn't true because they weren't filtering blocks for Bitcoin addresses that were on the OFAC sanctions list. And of course, OFAC stands for Office of Foreign Asset Control, and it's one of these sanctioning entities in the U.S. Treasury. It's used to sanction Iran, Russia, Hezbollah, all of the entities that the U.S. government doesn't like. Basically, it's a list of names and businesses and Ethereum and Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency addresses that the U.S. government thinks uh, are related to bad people that they don't like. And so you're not supposed to interact with them. Well, when last year, when this mining pool hinted that they were OFAC filtering, basically not mining blocks from addresses on this list, this developer developed a tool called Mining Pool Observer. And what it does is basically monitors mempools. And so I think the developer is monitoring their own mempool. And I think you can also add your mempool as like a data source to this observer. I'd have to look at the documentation again. And what it does is every second, it builds a Bitcoin block out of the transactions that are in its mempool. And then when a block is mined by a pool, it compares the blocks that it's built to the blocks that are being mined. And it tries to find transactions that are missing. And usually when a transaction is missing, there's an innocuous reason, like it only showed up in the mining pool observer pool a second ago, so it might not have propagated to the mining pool. Also, there are transactions that show up in the block, the mining pool block that shouldn't be there, transactions with fees that are too low. And these are generally ascribed to the initiator of that transaction used a mining pool accelerator channel, like a credit card transaction or a, or a bank wire to add additional fees to that transaction so that the mining pool would mine it. But sometimes there are transactions missing and there's no explanation. And the reason therefore has to be probably the transaction was filtered out at the pool level for some reason. And I'm guessing based on that return code that said OFAC compliant transaction, the some reason is they're filtering based on this list provided by the U.S. government. Well, the irony was that that OFAC compliant message, they were not actually filtering those blocks. So there were sanctioned addresses in those blocks. So it was just some sort of marketing or, or they were getting ready to do that, but they kind of jumped the gun. But what's happened is that Mining Pool Observer has detected, I think, six blocks mined by F2 Pool that seem to be missing addresses or outputs from addresses that are on the OFAC compliant list. So this is really good evidence that F2 Pool has been filtering transactions, censoring transactions using the OFAC list of sanctioned Bitcoin addresses as their filter. Hmm. You know, I'm grateful that we have projects that are watching this and now more people are going to be watching as a result of this. Now they've walked this back. I think there was news that someone from F2 Pool said something to the effect of that they're going to roll back the patch that enabled this filtering until there's more consensus around how the community wants to handle this sort of thing. And Mining Pool Observer is a really important project because if we didn't have this tool monitoring blocks and mempools, we would have totally missed this because it's hard to, it's actually hard to identify 
a block filter or a censorship filter because you're trying to find something that should be there but isn't there. That's actually quite difficult. And so this is a very important project. And I think it also is ringing an alarm bell that we are on a slippery slope to censorship. And obviously, we don't need to play it out all the way to the end because things often don't go to their logical extreme. But this is the beginning, perhaps, of censorship on Bitcoin. And it's happening at the pool level, which makes a lot of sense because they're centralized, larger entities. They can be regulated. Two of the largest mining pools in the world are based in the U.S. Together, they control over 51% of Bitcoin hash rate. Does that mean they're going to 51% attack Bitcoin? No, because they don't have a financial incentive to. And even if ordered to by the U.S. government, miners could direct their hash rate elsewhere. There are also developments like the Stratum V2 protocol that allows the individual miners in the pool to build block templates, not the pool itself. So this takes away some of the censoring power of the pool. So there are positive developments in Bitcoin mining that kind of offsets this censorship activity, but it's still happening and we still need more development on freedom technology and mining, in my opinion. I think we're really, and the trend of this episode, I think is going to kind of lay it out there. We're on the precipice of a bunch of really historical forks in the road for Bitcoin in particular. I also think that maybe this will reignite interest in the plebs to set up little mining operations at home, even if they're small, little low power operations. You know, we can always add a little bit more decentralization to the network. So kind of gets me thinking about it. Maybe others will too. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on November 24th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad. Happy Thanksgiving. And I'm here, as always, remotely with me, Chris. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're going to touch on another SEC lawsuit against Kraken that asserts Polygon and Solana are securities. The major news of the week is that Binance CEO CZ has pled guilty to U.S. money laundering charges, and the exchange is going to pay a $4.3 billion fine to settle some U.S. allegations. Seems like the exchange space is becoming much more compliant. Also, Bitrex, another non-U.S. crypto exchange, is shutting down. The question has to be asked, is Bitcoin entering its epoch of diminishing returns? The last happening disappointed in terms of the Bitcoin price gains. What's going on? Are we going to have another disappointing happening? One million dollar Bitcoin. We'll get into that. Bhutan's Bitcoin mining operation has been identified by Forbes. I know we always accuse Forbes of being incapable of serious journalism, and they seem to have kind of done an interesting job here. So there's sort of an interesting story about Bhutan and their relationship with mining. Wallet of Satoshi, a popular custodial Bitcoin wallet, is removing its U.S. support. Obviously, it's not compliant with U.S. regulations around financial custody, so that was kind of an obvious thing that would happen when it got large enough. On the subject of app stores, Apple has again started beef with Zeus developer Evan Kaloudis after his developer account has been suspended. In economics, we have an excerpt from Lynn Alden's book, Broken Money. The title is The Monetary Gates Are Down. And this is a really interesting high-level take on financial technology adoption 
dollarization. And I think it ties in nicely with the news from Argentina about a new president who's sort of a outsider candidate and is talking about officially dollarizing the Argentinian economy. And privacy, Cloudflare seems to be filtering for Ethereum OFAC listed addresses. So the theme of this episode is financial censorship and address filtering. And Coin Center, a crypto lobbying group in Washington, D.C., has a blog post linking to their larger report on the U.S. Bank Secrecy Act and how terribly illegal it actually is. And then we have some boosts, and that's our show. Big show, because there's some big things happening that are going to kind of lay down, I think, the future of Bitcoin and how Bitcoiners are going to interact with their Bitcoin. So let's start with CZ. The U.S. federal government made a big show out of this. In fact, it's the first time that uh, Janet Yellen and the head of the Justice Department did a press conference together. And uh, of course, also the head of the FBI was there, and they announced a massive crackdown on Binance and that CZ was stepping down. And I think anybody that's kind of been watching the ETF news and kind of reading the signals from Gary and the SEC and from BlackRock, it seemed kind of inevitable that before the ETFs for Bitcoin were going to get approved, Binance was going to get reined in, at least taken down a peg, if not completely taken out. And I think we've definitely seen that now. The sheriff's in town, Dad. And actually, CZ was in our neck of the woods on Thursday. Just yesterday, he came to Seattle to plead guilty in federal court there, and he did not stop by to get a coffee, despite my offer. So I'm uh, feeling a little rejected, but yeah, that's, that's okay. too bad. He had to get back to Dubai, I guess. So what's going on here? Well, some of the reporting suggests that Binance has been in talks about this settlement with the U.S. Justice Department for three years. So this has been a long time in the making. I think that they set up their operations to be stateless, high degree of secrecy. They designed themselves to be kind of a hard target for U.S. law enforcement. But I think that was very difficult and very costly. And we saw in the past year just an outflow of Binance executives, first from Binance U.S., which was the supposedly compliant Binance operation, but clearly they also broke the rules. There was some leaked information about how market-making firms associated with CZ were interacting with Binance US and you know maybe the assets between Binance US and global Binance were commingled. And so all of the kind of compliant by-the-book CEOs that they hired in the US to kind of add a veneer of respectability and compliance to their US operation, they left. And so that was a bad look for Binance. That suggested that things were probably not going well. That said, this settlement is in many ways a great outcome because personally, I thought that Binance very easily could be another FTX, another insolvent exchange with you know very little scrutiny over their finances. So why wouldn't they be insolvent? Why wouldn't they have played games with customer funds? And it doesn't seem to be the case because as part of the agreement between Binance and the US Justice Department, the exchange seems to have a huge amount of cash on hand. They've, they've kind of uh, opened their books a little. And as long as that information isn't false, and frankly, providing false information to the US Justice Department is pretty suicidal, so I don't think they've done that, then they seem to be in a pretty okay financial position. The other aspect is that this paves the way for less resistance to Bitcoin and Ethereum now spot ETF proposals. Because Binance used to be 
80% of global crypto trading volume. It's since dropped down to 60%. And as they become more compliant with US regulation, which they will because they have to have a third-party auditor that monitors their compliance operations, they're going to get less and less volume because they're going to be less competitive versus already compliant exchanges like Kraken or Coinbase. That also means that some Binance customers who are not able to KYC with a US compliant exchange, they're going to move elsewhere. But those are going to be smaller volumes, smaller venues, and it seems like eventually the majority of crypto trading is going to be under the US regulatory umbrella. And so crypto bros, I think, like this because this means bigger market cap, more opportunity for centralized projects that require some legal cover to print tokens and whatever, pump and dump them. But I think for us, for the kind of cypherpunk big Bitcoiners, this is the end of an era. This is the end of the wildcat exchanges. This is the end of a kind of free-for-all, wheeling and dealing, international exchange, Bitcoin, financial market. And it seems like something much more compliant, much more under the thumb of US regulation is replacing it. Well, Ted, you're just using the wrong language. What Wall Street is calling it is, this is the end of the, quote, legacy exchanges, and we're now entering into the era of trusted exchanges. So you see, Dad, you're just looking at it from the wrong angle. They got him dead to rights on a few things. It's pretty embarrassing. It's, I mean, I guess they better. You know, if it took them three years across three different agencies and God knows how many staff to work on this obvious case, I hope they had some good stuff. And one of them is internal communications that essentially are just walking through some whale customers through pretending like they're not from the U.S. and how to transition their account when they had to create Binance U.S., how to transition and make things uh, seem normal. They also have communications internally of the staff walking someone through who got flagged with fraud. I think maybe like another OFAC sanction Ethereum thing. And so their account got flagged and they're like, well, you don't really have to leave, but you just have to make it look like you're leaving the platform. Here's here's some tips, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff just right there in the chat. Um, so I, yeah, that's one of the reasons why CZ is kind of, they got him dead to rights. I don't really quite understand how it works since he's not a U.S. citizen, but clearly there's a bilateral cooperation, I suppose. Yeah, I got to agree with Sam Bankman-Fried on this one. If you put something in the Slack chat, expect it to be on the front page of the New York Times. So uh, that uh, is certainly some egg on their face. You know, the in the previous SEC denials of spot ETFs for Bitcoin, I believe at least in one of them, it's been a while and they're really thick, but I believe at least in one of them, they specifically cited Binance as a market manipulator of the Bitcoin price, which is why we kind of, you and I months ago said, yeah, Binance has got it. They're in, Binance is done. They got it in for Binance. If they're specifically calling out Binance as a risk and now that now BlackRock, the big dog wants a spot ETF, they're going to have to go clean up the exchanges. And that's exactly what happened. And Fidelity has just opened a proposal for a new Ethereum spot ETF. So it seems like the era of regulated financial products wrapping cryptocurrencies is here. And again, it could have been worse for Binance because they are not admitting to market manipulation. They're not admitting to purloining customer assets. Oddly enough, kind of like Tether, they're this, they were this gray market, black market entity that didn't have to do financial compliance because they were so clearly out of compliance, but they were pretty good, it seems. They, they didn't monkey around with and hurt their customers that much. And so in an odd way, it kind of is an example of how maybe regulated financial compliance is, is maybe not as necessary as uh, as people seem to believe. You get market compliance when you 
succeed at being just a little bit less shady than your nearby competitor. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, when it comes to all of this stuff, they it, it seems like there was pretty pretty good indications though that they were intermingling customer funds and their finances. I didn't dig super deep into it, but I did see multiple references to it in the brief that there was commingling of funds. And you know the SEC's been signaling about coming after commingling of funds for two years. So there, I mean, there was some of that going on. It seems right. So they were kept in similar. They weren't fully segregated accounts. And this is kind of the argument that the future for exchanges is separating custody and trading. And this is how U.S. markets have prevented financial fraud for over 100 years now. Because if the exchange has to trade your assets by contacting your custodian, your custodian is keeping records of what the exchange is doing, and therefore it becomes much harder to pull an FTX and you know basically use customer assets for whatever you want. Corey, is that you? Are you there, Corey? On the one hand, you can see how separating custody and trading is a good idea. On the other hand, you know, I wonder if this leads Bitcoin into the gold rabbit hole, where in order to trade on these venues, you have to send coins into regulated custodians. And these regulated custodians, you know, the, the coins never come out. They just end up sitting there forever. And then you end up with a market like the U.S. stock market, where all the shares are actually custodied by the deposit clearing corporation or like the bullion markets where the bulk of the world's tradable gold is in the LBMA, London Bullion Market Association vaults, and it's not audited, it's hard to know how much is there, and we sort of lose that auditability aspect of Bitcoin in the process of mainstreaming it as a financial asset. I, I think that's definitely a scenario. You know, We've seen a similar sort of consolidation with open source into commercial entities, but I could see it sort of playing out where you know, a couple hundred dollars here and there. That's really kind of just still peer to peer, you know, so over some layer two, not really a big deal. But when you want to say spend 900, you want to cash out $900,000 worth of Bitcoin, because maybe you got to like buy a house in the Pacific Northwest. I suspect you're only going to be doing those transactions with companies like Coinbase or the, you know, New York Stock Exchange or Fidelity or whoever it is at that point that's managing your Bitcoin stash. And it's going to be, they're going to hold your keys for you. And, you know, their reputation will be on the line. They have to hold a bunch of assets right now, but it's going to be more like that, I think, for the very large transaction because, you know, terrorism and we got to protect from fraud. Right. And I find that very depressing because for me, Bitcoin has always been about having financial sovereignty, being able to do what you want with your money. And now it seems like there are a couple asterisks to that, depending on how you want to interact with the regulated financial system. Although, you know, all those right wingers that can drive you crazy in Bitcoin, they're going to get inspired by this and motivated to build systems that preserve privacy. I really believe that because that's just sort of been the playbook throughout Bitcoin. Things like, you know, we have these ideas and these concepts and we poke at them and we poke at them. And then there's a market need all of a sudden. And then it's it's the best thing ever. And it starts getting traction. Maybe. I mean, one counterpoint to that is that a lot of Bitcoin scaling solutions are centralization based. For instance, Barack's ARC protocol, which no one fully understands, but it's a concept of a kind of hybrid LSP slash something else provider. And they have this system where you can kind of trade 
for free inside the ARC server, but you can always withdraw as long as you're online once a month to kind of refresh your virtual TXOs and you can withdraw to Lightning. But this is a centralized entity and for sure it'll be regulated because as we're observing, even Binance, which built itself in an anti-fragile way that was hard to regulate, it is throwing in the towel. It's not worth it to fight for them anymore. But the problem, Dad, even there with, you know, okay, yeah, that's that's a problem for ARC. The problem is at the exits. It doesn't really matter what solution we use to mix our coins or to get, you know, privacy on the network. If we still want to take those sats across the exit into some sort of local currency to buy something uh, with a large amount, the problem is going to be there at the exit. It always will be. And that's where the control is. That's why I really feel like Bitcoiners should spend a lot more time thinking about creating a Bitcoin economy, you know, doing business with businesses that take Bitcoin. Because I, I just feel like if we can avoid the off ramps altogether, then we're all better off. And businesses are much more happy to sit there and stack sats and look at the market. Well, I think in the future, but you know, stack sats and sell or sell them directly and deal with the tax consequences and manage the KYC there because a business has already KYC'd up the wazoo anyways. And so it just, to me, it just seems like if we could keep in a circular economy where the businesses can cash out to their, to whatever their preference is, individuals can buy in and cash out to their preference, but we could buy more and more goods and sats. I, I think it, it solves a big part of the problem. And then you, know, you look at, well, where is this actually happening? Well, bit refill. There are some things out there, but podcasts, podcasts are one of the few things where we actually price things in sats. Like we don't, we don't, I don't, I don't know how much, you know, a row of ducks converts to in us dollars right now. I don't know what a, a McDuck row of ducks converts to in dollars. I know what it is in sats is 22,000, 2,220 sats, 222 sats, or, you know, a row of ducks is just 2,222 sats. I, I have no idea what that is in USD price because I don't care. We've been pricing it in a sat based economy because it is a sat. It's all, it's all, it's all sats the whole way through. And I think we need more of that. And then we don't really have to worry about the exit point. And in a lot of ways, things like lightning, I think they make this more of a reality. And that's why I'm still, even though it's frustrating to run a node right now, I, I'm actually still very positive on these things. And we can't always avoid the exit points, but maybe we can have less and less of them. No, I agree. I mean, sometimes the simplest solutions are the best. And so if we do have the potential during this Bitcoin bull run to also see serious issues in the legacy financial system. We've talked about them. The regional banking crisis in the U.S. isn't over. The commercial real estate crisis in the U.S. is really just getting started. The U.S. government is in an increasingly unsustainable fiscal position. And as a result, financial surveillance and financial control in the legacy system is tightening. And it's even tightening into Bitcoin and crypto, as we've described. And so this might incentivize people who previously dealt in dollars for all of their financial transactions to consider dealing in sats. And it does feel like maybe we are some way away from that, but the incentives for dealing in sats directly seem to be getting better. So maybe there is a silver lining there. Yeah, I think it just takes a new a new generation of businesses, but there is a bit of an upside to some of this cleanup of things like Binance or some of these other exchanges that are shutting down. It will, over time, cultivate more trust in the marketplace. That is going to be the upshot to this, is that you're, instead of these crazy names and brands you've never heard of that are mostly for most people just an app on their phone that are you know these new startups it's going to be institutions that have been around their entire lives it's names they've heard since they've been babies that are known to be like the top brands in money despite what we might think about the banks average people and the brand recognition is huge and the fact that they're going to be talking about bitcoin now 
and they're going to be talking about it through their instruments, I, I think is it's like the difference between when people refuse to put their credit card on Amazon and now everybody buys everything on Amazon. That's a good point. You remember, you're old enough to remember this too, right? Like our parents and family members were afraid to put their credit cards on the internet. That was a thing for a long time, but trust shifted. And now everyone's on Amazon and everybody's putting their credit cards into a membership for a streaming service or buying something through an app on their phone. That wasn't the case in the nineties and in the early aughts. It took, it took a shift. And that's what's going to happen with Fidelity, Bitcoin ETFs and BlackRock, Bitcoin ETFs. Now it's clearly not a black market criminal money system because BlackRock's in it, Fidelity's in it. So there is that aspect to it. It's definitely a legitimate asset now. And but the cost is you take out CZ, you know, Binance gets knocked down to a fraction of itself, a skeleton version of itself. The exit points get a little tighter, right? That's the, that's the trade-off. And we see that as well with exchanges like Bittrex shutting down. And obviously Bittrex is a small exchange. I think its market share has been decreasing steadily for a very long time, but it's shutting down operations on December 4th. And it's just another one of these bucket shops, another one of these sort of international exchanges that had light KYC shutting down. And I think it's another sign of the institutionalization of the Bitcoin exchange right. market sort of in preparation for exchange-traded products and fidelity. And I'll remind you, we started the show talking about Kraken. They have, the SEC's already taken a bite out of Kraken earlier this year. They, they had a massive fine already once this year. They're coming back for round two with the securities lawsuit against Kraken. Uh, they're, I think, again, I don't know if they're going to destroy them, but they're going to financially wreck them and take them down to be an insignificant player in the market. Probably, you know, it's a war of attrition. But you take it all together with Binance and CZ, Bittrex stepping down, or shutting down, I'm sorry, the second round of attacks on Kraken, all within a couple of weeks, all within a couple of weeks. They've been working on this stuff for a while. And it's all coming together right now. I, I think we're this is remarkable history being made. And it's all kind of machinations behind the scenes that I don't think most people are paying attention to. Well, there's another perspective to the SEC's lawsuit on Kraken because they already settled for $30 million when they sued Kraken for their staking operation. The thing is that this lawsuit against Kraken is a copy pasta of their lawsuit against Coinbase. And so the SEC is suing both Kraken and Coinbase, the two largest, I think, U.S. exchanges. I'm not sure if Gemini is larger than Kraken. And what's going on here? Well, noticeably absent from the settlement against Binance and CZ was the SEC. So there is a sense that the U.S. Justice Department and other U.S. financial regulators are kind of keeping the SEC at arm's length because they didn't get in on the Binance settlement. And I think this kind of speaks to some of the concerns we've mentioned about Gary Gensler. He is a he seems to be really interested in his own career and kind of the credibility of his agency is uh, secondary to that. And it seems like the SEC is trying to hedge their bets because if they lose one of the lawsuits against a U.S. exchange that might uh, create a legal precedent that they do not have the ability to regulate U.S. crypto exchanges, they want another lawsuit that gives them the opportunity to win and maintain that precedent. And of course, the lawsuit against Kraken is quite absurd because the SEC claims that Kraken never tried to register with the SEC and you know was just operating with impunity when we all know that Kraken and Coinbase have tried very hard to register with the SEC and the SEC has not been interested in accepting their regulation. They'd rather keep them as kind of gray market entities and then 
regulate via enforcement whenever it was convenient to the SEC. You know, I think it's fallen off our radar, but I just looked it up. The SEC sued Gemini in January of this year for their EARN program. Gemini has then countersued to try to get it dismissed a couple of months ago. And then something else that that has happened that we kind of forgot about is the New York AG is suing Gemini, Genesis, and DCG and others for defrauding customers and other issues. So there's also some local states that are going after Gemini. So Gemini's got a couple of lawsuits as well going on right now. So the pressure really is on, on all these exchanges. It's really kind of, when you zoom out and look at it all, it's kind of impressive, the coordination and the, and the amount of crackdown. And I think I disagree with your take on Gary now. You know, you say Gary's looking out for his career. I believe that part. But you say at the cost of the credibility of the SEC. I don't know, man. Yeah, fast forward five years where the consumers are buying Bitcoin spot ETFs. The market's been cleared up. Gary might be remembered as the commissioner who cleaned up crypto. That might be his whole thing. He's like, he's the guy that came in, launched 125 legal actions or something. Like they're, they're up there near the 120 different legal cases around uh, involving crypto right now. You know, so he launched 125 crypto legal cases, cracked down on things like CZ for billions of dollars roped in these guys. But he didn't. He didn't get in on the Binance settlement. The SEC has a separate civil case against Binance, which clearly Binance doesn't think is more threatening than the Justice Department case because they weren't interested in including that in the settlement that they've already inked with the Justice Department. I still think, though, I, I think that his, he's going to be remembered as the sheriff that cleaned up crypto and all of these, you know, scammy exchanges and whatnot. You know, there'll be his picture next to SBF, even if it's not quite true. It's I think that's going to I think it's going to be fantastic for Gary. And I think it's going to be fantastic for the credibility of the SEC. And they'll have expanded their power and their reach considerably through these actions. And because there's always going to be crap coins coming online, There's this is going to be an endless amount of work for the SEC that they now clearly, through all these legal actions, the established cop for that beat. And uh, Gary did that for them, helped bring that to them. I, I think I think he's going to be remembered as a massive success for the SEC and as uh, the crypto cop. It's going to be great for him. And all we had to do was give up our privacy, lose our ability to mix our coins, not really have access to self-custody apps, and um, only sell and buy through KYC major institutional players. But no Number go up. You know, I think that's what they're they're hoping. We'll see. I don't think that's necessarily the future, but I think Gary's going to come out looking like uh, like the t- like the top the top cop, feeling great, looking like the king. He could slide right into that treasury position if he wants. I was going to say when he becomes secretary of the U.S. Treasury, we should um, send him a note. I guess. Yeah. Have a party on the show for Gary. You did it, Gary. Well done. From a pure Bitcoin perspective, it's kind of good to see some of this go. We needed FTX cleaned up. We did kind of need Binance cleaned up, right? Binance doesn't serve Bitcoin. CZ's never done anything for Bitcoin. In fact, you can find video online years ago when there was like some Binance software error where he's like advocating to roll back the blockchain. Like, what? What are you, what are, what are you thinking? It was one of their hacks. It wasn't one of their big hacks, but one of their hot wallets was hacked for like $63 million. And he was like, hold on, we might roll back the chain. And everyone was like, what are you talking about, CZ? That doesn't happen. It's a little controversial, but I think if we have a discussion, it might happen. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so he's never been a big Bitcoiner. And all of these casinos have done irreparable harm to Bitcoin's reputation. Imagine if the iPhone came out and there was one app and 25,000 
scam virus malware apps. Nobody would trust the iPhone in the app store. It would crater the trust in the product. Android has a little bit more of a problem with malware than Apple does, even though Apple has a problem, but they have a little bit more. And there is overall less market trust in the Play Store. And it shows in statistics. And so this, this damage that has been done to Bitcoin, where everybody has just lumped crypto into a single category and it's all a scam, has done harm to humanity and the adoption of a sovereign technology that if could have been adopted at a quicker pace before governments got their hands around it, could have provided more sovereignty and more freedom and more optionality to more people in the world. But instead, that adoption was slowed down because many people were scared away from it for very understandable reasons. So in a way, like, what's Gary done that he's wrong about? Like, he, Gary's not responsible for Operation, you know, Choke the Goose. That's Warren and her friends. Choke the Goose. <laughs> right? That's Warren and her friends. That's not Gary. As far as I'm concerned, he's actually done a pretty good job. He could have done it better and sooner before people lost millions of dollars. And we could have done it through proper regulation. But that was never going to happen. We were never going to get Congress to do a good job at that ever. This is really our only option. And through these actions, long term, Bitcoin will be considered more legitimate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I don't know what to add there. I don't I don't fully disagree. I mean, it could turn out that way. I guess we'll just have to see. It is, I guess, gross to watch somebody play the political, you know, be a political mover, especially for a topic that we care a lot about. That part really does gross me out. So I'm not giving them a full pass. What about Wallet of Satoshi? Do you give them a pass as they pull out of the U.S. app stores? This is hard to see. Somebody who's gotten a lot of emails on Coda Radio from developers, from a from an internal like discussion standpoint, this tears these people apart. They've been working on this thing for years. It's a business. They've jumped through all of Apple's hoops. They've paid their fines. They've done all the submissions. They've responded to app review, fixed all the things. Been, they've built a user base and a brand. And then one day, Apple have, has an issue with something about your app. We don't know exactly what it is. Some of these discussions are actually under NDA, so we don't get a lot of detail. But Waldo Satoshi is pulling out of both the Play Store and the Apple App Store because it is, quote, not in compliant with U.S. regulations around financial custody. That's a concerning little bit of detail right there to me. Wallet of Satoshi is a popular custodial Bitcoin lightning wallet. I think for a while it was the most popular Bitcoin lightning wallet. And now there are many other options with uh, a whole rainbow array of custody versus self-custody versus convenience. And I think that Wallet of Satoshi always struck me as something that was going to be a stopgap. It was a fully custodial solution run by who knows who runs it, but they seem to have done all right by their users. I've never heard anyone complaining that Wallet of Satoshi stole their funds or anything, but they never were going to be able to survive at scale because an operation like that only survives as long as uh, it's small enough to avoid attention. And I think maybe they got large enough or there is just you know more attention on financial compliance today. And so they are pulling out of the U.S. This doesn't smell like the Swan situation to you, where essentially the banks that Swan's depended on interpreted the guidance that the, the FinSec is just floating right now as we're going to take action on this? Wallet of Satoshi doesn't have any dollar rails. It's all lightning Satoshis. So they're not, they don't have any overlap with the banking system. Maybe Apple or the Google Play Store might have an issue with what they're doing from a financial compliance point of view. But I think that this is how they at least delay U.S. sanction. You know, they pull out of the U.S. And I mean, there's, they still obviously have U.S. users 
if any of their electronic communication crossed the U.S., then they're going to be, you know, that gives jurisdiction to U.S. financial regulators. So, you know, what they're doing will be regulated away at some point. But I think part of the playbook is you pull out of the U.S. to try and get to the back of the queue of U.S. law enforcement actions, and then you eventually get enforced against and then, you know, probably shut down with a fine. I read this as they were approached by Apple with an issue. And I think when you combine it with the fact that Zeus, Zeus developer Evan, had his account deactivated by Apple. Now, he he theorizes on Twitter it could be because his complaints were cited in someone else's antitrust suit against Apple. And so it's it's just Apple taking... I guess, like a punitive move. However, I doubt that because we have seen other developers with much larger platforms attack Apple and their policies, and we haven't seen Apple take punitive actions. Maybe it's, maybe it's just circumstances, but I just find it interesting that within two days, Wallet of Satoshi and Evan, the Zeus developer, have their accounts removed, and or in some capacity or another. And Evan got no notice from Apple. He just had his account deactivated. Now, I think it might still be a test flight, but he had his he can't publish anymore. And Zeus is in my opinion, maybe the best mobile app out there for Bitcoin and Lightning. And this is a massive, massive loss. And you know, because we met Evan at Adopting Bitcoin, he recently bought an iPhone. He switched from Android. He bought an iPhone so that way he could be deep in that ecosystem and make sure that the iOS app was first class for iPhone users. And then Apple goes and does this to him. I wonder if it has to do with Zeus integrating a Lightning service provider, because now Zeus is kind of more of a financial services provider, not just software that allows you to interact with your own node. But frankly, that seems a little nuanced. I mean, generally when Apple bans applications, it's because of some automated process, not a careful, considered look at all of your features, right? Yeah. It seems like the issue Apple has is things that enable peer-to-peer payments without KYC. That's what I think the common denominator is. And I think we're going to see the Apple App Store crack down on anything that can do peer-to-peer that doesn't KYC or go through Apple Pay. And you know what's ironic, Dad? <laughs> we just are crossing over in like two days, my one-year mark from switching from iPhone to Graphene OS because Apple started screwing around with other Bitcoin wallet developers a year ago. And now here we are in my one-year anniversary and my favorite app has just got their account this is the one I just switched my switched my wife and kid over to as well during adopting Bitcoin on their iPhones. It looks very prescient because like we knew Apple was going down this route towards more more curated app store. And it, it makes financial sense because the app store is where Apple is making the bulk of their money right now because they leverage this 30% fee on top of all transactions in the app store. So they have every incentive to kill this golden goose, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think maybe Mutiny made the right call when they rebuilt the Mutiny wallet app as a progressive web app. Just completely bypass the app store and just take advantage of modern browser technology. If you want to put an icon on your dashboard or on your desktop, whatever you want to call it, your launcher, you can. On Android, if you want it as an app, you can. But on iOS, you get a great progressive web app. The monetary gates are open. An excerpt from Lynn Alden's recent book, Broken Money. This is kind of a condensation. Lynn describes how the world monetary system is basically 160 different currency bubbles. And inside your currency bubble, you can spend these fiat assets or these fiat dollars or yen or Egyptian pounds. And then the moment you get outside of that little bubble, the saleability of these bills decreases rapidly. And also while you're inside this bubble, you're entirely subject to the monetary policy and the inflation 
taxed against you by the monetary sovereign inside that bubble. And that moving money between these bubbles is very costly and it's a permissioned activity. So even if I want to send you dollars in another country, the amount of money you actually get is kind of a result of legislation and fees being taken out. And it, and it is probably not as much as I sent you or significantly less in many situations. And what Lynn observes is that with the advent of Bitcoin and stable coins, these new technologies are, are holes in the wall of these uh, isolated monetary environments. The gates are open. Now, people in Argentina who have been experiencing you know, basically 200% inflation per year over the last 40 years, they can now hold stable coins or Bitcoin. They can easily hold assets that have better property rights than US dollar bank accounts, which are frequently confiscated and devalued and, and whatnot. And this basically means that monetary policy around the world, outside of the United States, is becoming harder and harder for local governments. And I think this is generally viewed as a good thing by Bitcoiners and people who are interested in human freedom and property rights. And I think it's viewed as a bad thing by institutions like the IMF and World Bank that are very concerned with government's ability to perform monetary policy against their citizens. This observation, I think, is quite prescient because we've recently had an election in Argentina of kind of a fringe candidate who is a part of his manifesto. I think his name is Javier Millet. He wants to dollarize, officially dollarize the Argentinian economy, which is already high highly dollarized, but not officially. That's, uh, I think, illegal to deal in dollars. So what does this mean for Bitcoin and Bitcoiners? I think that this article and the trends that Lynn is highlighting are basically the rest of the world is catching up to concerns that Bitcoiners, gold bugs, and people who have been concerned about monetary debasement and centralized monetary policy since 2008 have been talking about. Yeah, they're, they're catching up as their bags depend upon it. <laughs> as uh, inflation in your local economy accelerates, you just have a much greater incentive to understand the value of deflationary assets like Bitcoin. And I don't know how deep we want to get into the stablecoin discussion, but one advantage of stablecoins for people in developing economies is that even though the stablecoin is issued by a central issuer, they're usually outside of this local economy where you're being aggressively inflated away. And so the property rights of a stablecoin are generally better than, say, a U.S. dollar bank account in Russia or a U.S. dollar bank account in Turkey or in Argentina, because these bank accounts are periodically converted into local currency, the dollar is stolen and given to the government for their hard currency needs, and then you're stuck with a local inflating currency and you need to quickly rush and buy a harder asset. And often that's real estate or gold or something. And I think this gets to how it's incredibly difficult to save in non-developed economies because there just aren't a range of financial products that provide the year-on-year -year price growth that compensates you or sort of protects you from inflation. This is a really interesting development because we seem to be entering 
another period of financial contraction. There are, as we highlighted uh, two episodes ago, there are a lot of signs of stress in the financial system, particularly around U.S. government debt, that uh, even though it's yielding high rates, the entire uh, maturity curve has moved up. And so uh, a large amount of U.S. government debt today is uh, is actually uh, underwater on a market-to-market basis. And so that just suggests financial stress. It indicates that we might have further banking system problems. And the price of oil is falling, indicating a uh, lack of global demand, which is generally a leading indicator of recession. So in this environment, what is the standard government response? And the standard government response is to cut interest rates to attempt to stimulate local economies. And when the U.S. does this, all other countries sort of have to do this at the same time or else their currency will sort of uh, either strengthen or devalue sharply against the U.S. dollar. And so basically every central bank around the world, they have to move lockstep with the U.S. dollar or they're going to experience sort of a dislocation in their currency. Well, if the monetary gates are open, if their citizens can opt out of local monetary policy by holding Bitcoin or stable coins, that just leads to a very different potential outcome. It might mean that monetary policy is more inflationary and less stimulative. And so I think that this is kind of a trend that bears watching. And it's just very interesting in the context of recent electoral wins in Argentina, where a pro-dollar anti-local currency candidate has you know, just been elected to the presidency. Yeah. As we record, the news has come out that uh, he's confirmed that he plans to shut down the central banks. He's released a statement that he's going to shut them down. What I hear you saying is that you're bullish on stable coins over lightning. That's what I hear is we need, we're going to need stable coins on lightning. I didn't like it. I didn't want it. But you're making the case that stable coins are going to just be in massive demand. And right now, the only way to get stable coins is some crappy altcoin where there's a massive amount of third party risk. Well, I mean, I think that's always going to be the case. A stable coin entails third party risk. But I guess what you mean is if you can have stable coins on lightning via taproot assets, then you don't have to deal with the platform risk of using Tether on Tron, right? Or Ethereum. You know, we, you and I have observed how Ethereum keeps sneaking in the door of institutions. You know, there's some spot ETFs that have been submitted for that. When the SEC sues Kraken and Coinbase and they list all of the securities, Ethereum isn't on that list. And I think it's because of stablecoins. That's right. That's the real use case for Ethereum is that different jokers can make their own crappy stablecoin. And there's just a massive, massive, massive worldwide demand for stablecoins. And I don't know, maybe we want to just, maybe the conversation is, we do we want to just cede that territory to Ethereum or Tron or whatever? Or, or do we want that action backed by Bitcoin over a layer two? I'm not sure we do, but maybe that conversation should be had because I think the signal from the institutions is stablecoins are here to stay. And I think Lynn's analysis makes it clear there's going to be worldwide demand for stablecoins. Like, it just seems like that's not going away. That's an innovation the market likes. And Bitcoin is in many ways a permissionless technology. And so I don't think we can stop stablecoins on Bitcoin. And let's not forget that the first stablecoin was built on Bitcoin. That was Tether built on the Omni protocol, which was way back in the day. And it quickly moved to Ethereum and then to Tron as Bitcoin fees increased. And maybe one day they come back home. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm actually looking forward to that conversation if it picks up. I think in the in the notes, you should check. we'll put in a link to Cloudflare, who seems to be following OFAC approved lists for their gateway service. Uh, that's a good read. And then 
we have an optech which has some details about lightning addresses. Right, and maybe we'll skip over the Coin Center piece on the U.S. Bank Secrecy Act, but the TLDR there is that the Bank Secrecy Act is a sweeping surveillance policy that uh, essentially removes all financial privacy from uh, any individual who uses a third party in a financial transaction, which is basically every financial transaction other than Bitcoin in the world. And the question, of course, is, is this constitutional? And uh, it's, it's definitely not, but it's probably not going to be changed because it's a very useful tool for social control, tax evasion, all sorts of uh, government policies that could be used for raising revenue. And the U.S. government is in a period where it needs more revenue. So things like the Bank Secrecy Act, I believe, will be very useful tools for going after additional sources of income. This is a good analysis by Coin Center. You know, we actually give them a shout out for doing good work there. Link in the show notes for that as well. All right. So there's also a link in there to the Optech. Is there much we want to get into with the Lightning addresses? Well, I mean, it's basically improvements to LN URL. So the ability to have a Lightning address, you know, Chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com that's reusable and that provides some sort of privacy from the entity that's hosting the web server that's providing that uh, data to Lightning wallets. I think that's the TLDR. It's kind of nice. I like it. And it's kind of done via DNS, it looks like. A DNS lookup to validate. It's kind of a neat idea. It would be a lot easier if I could just say, send me you know, stats to chris at jupiterbroadcasting.com instead of chris at Zeus or whatever it might be, Alby or whatever happened might be. I would like just my email address. Make it, it would make it a lot simpler for people. And I think that you can you can host your own Ellen URL right now. So you know maybe we should just be doing that and put our stats where our mouth True. is. True, true. If we host it ourselves, then that removes the privacy implications yeah. of relying on someone else to host it for yeah, us. Because you, you and I definitely need more self-hosted infrastructure right now, especially in the holidays. Oh, absolutely. We, we need another project real quick. I know. Yeah. Did I tell you I <laughs> set up that new machine learning server? It's great. My office is yeah. so warm right now. <laughs> yeah. Run it for the holidays and keep your office warm. That's what I would do. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, Bitcoin DadPod at ProtonMail.com or head on over to WeaponX. And you consider us at Bitcoin Dad Pod or just get in that matrix chat, decentralized federation, you get account at matrix.org and then jump in there with element or something like that. We got links in the show notes for that. And I uh, just want to mention, we got our 3000 sat reoccurring boost from Bob B. Thank you, Bob, for being a reoccurring booster. You, you basically are the only listener with the Bitcoin Dad Pod membership, and there are absolutely no benefits to that membership. So <laughs> don't know He's what a to pioneer. Say. He's a pioneer. Uh, we did get some great boosts this week, including a baller boost from Bitcoin Lizard, 100,000 sats using Podverse. And he writes, great interview with Waxwing. Not sure if everyone picked it up, but Waxwing gave a subtle shout out to the media produced by the sound engineer. He was, of course, referring to the Epic Plan B podcast produced by none other than Chris. Thanks, Chris, for producing the great Bitcoin content for over 10 years. And thank you both for the ex excellent Bitcoin dad pod. Wow, that's a great deep reference catch, Bitcoin lizard. Right, because Chris was handling the sound for that interview. So if you thought, gosh, the sound quality on this interview is way better than your standard Bitcoin dad fare. It's because the podcasting OG <laughs> oh, original plan B, Chris, was handling it. 
I'm impressed, A, because it was a vague reference, and B, like, we never made reference to the fact that I'm there. I might have laughed or something in the background, but, you know, like, that's a pretty good catch. Nice one, and thank you for that great boost, too. Yeah, how great is it that Waxwing really was tuned in? And what I really appreciated about my conversations with Waxwing was that he has a real clarity to history where some of it's faded for me because I've followed the Linux and open source community so closely that some of that OG Bitcoin drama has faded a bit. But when when I talk to Waxwing, it comes back crystal clear again. Uh, And so I really enjoyed reminiscing and getting his insights because uh, he's a real smart guy. And uh, clearly he clearly has uh, been following things closely for a long time. We also received a baller boost or two from Pitar, who sent in a 50,000 sat boost with the message, great show guys, and then a 25,000 sat boost with the message, this is the way I remember a lot of the old days. Do you think he was listening to the Waxwing interview on that? I do. I do. 75,000 total sats. Thank you, Pitar. It's really nice. Nice to see you. Yeah. Oh, me too. I know exactly what you mean. I felt it in the field. Jen in Indy comes in with 10,000 sats using Fountain and says, boost. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. And Scott sends in a row of ducks. I'll come join your Bitcoin island, Chris, but my primary skill is software development, which might be oversaturated given your audience. Side note, (laughs) but dad, I heard you say that you studied econ in college, but also that you work in IT. Did you double major or something? As someone entering college but split between econ and CS, it would be great to hear your story and advice on the matter. Oh man, that's quite the story. (laughs) Gosh, okay. Well, Scott, thank you so much for the boost. Basically, when I entered college, I did not get a lot of guidance from my parents. They just said, do what you love. And that's a nice sentiment, but it wasn't actually very practical. And so I did the prerequisites to major in astronomy, computer science, and economics. I think I probably loved astronomy the most. I thought computer science was kind of the most like fascinating. I mean, it's slightly different, but it just seemed like really challenging and interesting. And I settled for economics because people told me it was practical. I was also very interested and I had the opportunity to work with some professors and, you know, kind of that was that was a great experience. But frankly, I have to say that I think that studying economics is, um, well, if you could study something else, I would do that. Just because academic economics has a lot of orthodoxy. It's a field that's been entirely shaped, in my view, by the incentives of central banks that employ probably the most economists per capita of any other institution in the world. And so this has really distorted the focus of academic economics. And so if you are into Bitcoin and listening to this podcast and you go and study economics in college, you're just going to have a bad time because you're going to be someone who like brings up obscure Austrian economic philosophy and no one's going to have read it. No one's going to really care. And you're going to kind of be like the weird guy out in the corner. So while I think that economics is theoretically an important discipline to provide a lens to looking at politics and society and sort of figuring out the the actual financial reasons why things happen you know who who's actually getting paid here in your individual life i mean i think that something else would probably be more useful to you um, that's just my sense i would also say that when i was in school i didn't have a huge amount of confidence in my abilities and so i kind of settled for economics because i thought that computer science was too hard and i wasn't sure if I could do it. Now, I think that had I gone the CS route, I probably would have had a pretty good time. But it's all very individual. And I hope that 
you know, you find a uh, an answer that uh, you're happy with. Alec comes in with 10,000 sat, boasting to remind you about the 1,000 sat bet laid out in episode 101 that J-PAL will reference work from home in some official remarks before January of 2024. Dad took yes, and Chris reluctantly took no. I haven't been able to find any statements. I looked back, reviewed transcripts. I did find on October 2nd, J-PAL said, quote, we're still coming through the other side of the pandemic in reference to the labor market, but he did not reference work from home specifically. Okay, so the clock is ticking. <laughs> Sounds like... I'm, I'm going to give me a thousand sats. <laughs> okay, well... Yeah, the best sats ever. Thank, thank you, you so Halleck, much. for reminding us. Halleck, <laughs> you, you are course. the large language model of our show, it seems. <laughs> and we received a death boost from the Golden Dragon, 4,444 sats. Actually, that's two rows of ducks. So it's a flock. It's a flock of ducks? Flock of ducks, yeah. What do you call a group of ducks? Are you asking Halleck? Yeah, a group of ducks is called a flock, or a waddling, or a raft. It's a raft of ducks. I liked waddling. Okay, it's a waddling of ducks. Great episode. I wonder if mempools will ever clear, or if Odell is right, and they will never clear now. That is a good question. I would not bet money on mempools clearing. I just don't, I don't, I don't get the angle here. Like, so what we're essentially seeing is ordinals buying up a lot of, uh, like the, the, the block time. I mean, we're just seeing them dumping, like whenever the, whenever the fees are, are low, they're dumping and bringing up the fees. They're down right now though, actually. I mean, they're not outrageous at the moment from where we were last week. My mempool is not even fully maxed out at the moment, actually. I don't know. I just don't get the strategy. I, I don't know how long this could last. It feels like it's a temporary thing. People can only buy so many JPEGs for so long before they're going to run out of hard money. And <laughs> what are they going to do? It just seems like it's going to stop at some point. The Golden Dragon continues, also would gladly join Bitcoin Island. Well, we'd be glad to have yeah, you. Sure. But if there is a Golden Dragon and a Bitcoin Lizard, I mean, that's two lizards, right? So... Kids would love that. Tell you what, kids would love that. Thank you, Dragon, for the boost. DPG sent in 2,000 sats. I don't see a message, though. Let us know if that was an error or not, but thank you for the support. And Loomer came in with a row of ducks. Just simply said, Waxwing! Kyron also sent a row of ducks. He was listening to the Waxwing interview. Fantastic convo, Dad. I love these historical insights. You'll note that Waxwing rarely had strong assertions, a sign of nuance that fact and opinion rarely line up. Also, not a word about price. A breath of fresh air. Ah, it's true. Price never did come up. And look at Kyron coming in now with the new branding. No, no more Mere Mortals podcast. But thank you, Kyron, for the raw ducks. Yeah, that was a great conversation for me just to sit in on. I enjoyed just sitting there. And yeah, we were doing it in El Salvador as the sunset. It was pretty fantastic. It was a great venue and a great spot. Great temperature, too, because he's up on a hill a little bit. It was really fantastic conversation. And seems like the audience really enjoyed it, too. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, I think we also had our best meal in El Salvador. So that was a, that was a yeah. treat. That was. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We had 14 boosters, a total of 17 boosts across all of them. Thanks, everybody. And we stacked a total of 210,363 sats. We really appreciate that. I love seeing that number cross the 200 threshold. And, uh, if you got some value out of the show, some insights out of the conversation, helps you kind of wrap your head around a few things, and then you got some value from that, please consider boosting in. It's a great way to support each production and get your message right on the show. It's one of our favorite segments. You can do that with a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. You heard it here. Fountain and Castomatic and Podverse are the most popular in our audience. And then some people still boost in with the podcast index too, because they don't want to switch apps. To do that, you just get Albi, you top it off, and then you can boost from the web, like the Fountain website. I think you could do it, the Podverse website, and of course the podcast index. 
And to help you sort it all out, we'll put links in the show notes. It's a great way to participate in a circular Bitcoin economy and support the Bitcoin Dad Pod at the same time. Thank you, everybody who takes time to do that. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on November 24th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here, as always, remotely with... Hey, it's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll see you next time.